0: Hello and welcome to the Exploring Inequalities podcast series. My name is Oliver Patel and I'm a research assistant at UCL Grand Challenges. For today's episode, we're going to discuss one of the themes of our report, understanding evidence. To join me today, I have Josh Bradlow, who's a policy manager at Stonewall. Hello, Josh. Hiya. Thanks so much for joining me. So can you tell me a little bit
1: about Stonewall and the work that you do there? Sure, so Stonewall is Europe's largest lesbian, gay, bi and trans organisation, so LGBT for short. We have celebrated our 30th birthday this year and um, we were Happy set birthday. up, thank you very much, <laughs> and we were set up by Ian McKellen back in 1989 in response to a piece of legislation called Section 28, which essentially forbid schools and local authorities from the so-called promotion of homosexuality in schools and what that did was really make LGBT people completely invisible in teaching for decades thereafter and we're still seeing the impacts of that today. So as an organization, we've always had a very strong lobbying focus. We've successfully campaigned for things like equal marriage, protection against discrimination and accessing services or an employment and in 2015 we became fully trans inclusive. Previously we were a lesbian gay and bi organization but now we're lesbian gay bi and trans. Given that today we're talking about evidence, a lot of um, listeners
0: might have seen different acronyms, so LGBT, LGBTQ, LGBTI. Is there now a consensus about what obviously you're using LGBT and
1: why that is what has been decided upon and what are, what's the differences? That's a really good question. So there's um, definitely not a consensus and like all language, the language in this area is moving very quickly and I wouldn't be surprised if it keeps on moving and changing in the decades to come. At the moment we are lesbian, gay, bi and trans in terms of who we explicitly campaign for but at the same time that's very much open to change. We used to be lesbian, gay and bi then we became trans inclusive and I wouldn't be surprised if we change in the future. It's quite interesting to see that internationally LGBTI or LGBTQI now seems to be the most common and widely understood way of describing the community what's lgbtqi that's a good question <laughs> um so lesbian gay bi trans queer and intersex um the q can also mean questioning so that's people who don't feel 100 percent confident or sure in their identity but may feel that they're not fully straight or fully cisgender which means that they may be trans for example
0: thank you for explaining
1: that and it's, no def- it's, it's definitely something we'll come onto
0: later so just to kick things off with the understanding evidence theme we're going to talk about how better research can be done and how the data and evidence which is gleaned from that research can be used to more effectively advocate for change and to tackle inequalities and one thing which we found in our report was that there should be more use of qualitative evidence so stories and case studies so can you talk a bit about why stories and case studies are important and
1: can be valuable for highlighting inequalities and advocating for change? I think we're in a particularly important moment in time, both in the UK and globally, and there's been lots of discussion about the idea that we live in a post-truth world or that things like facts and experts aren't taken as seriously by large numbers of people as they were previously. And I think as researchers, as policymakers, we need to be responsive to the realities of the situation that we're working in. And I think if we're working in political climates where it's difficult to make evidence heard, to make facts heard then the power of stories, the power of individuals to tell their stories I think plays an incredibly important role in saying things which resonate with everyone, in saying things which really tap into people's deeper values and make them listen and make them stand up qualitative research I think from a policy perspective has always been the kind of lesser sibling compared to quantitative research and I think it's not an either or, they both work really well together and if we can triangulate the data where we've got the large scale quantitative research which is setting out the context for the whole nation but then we have the qualitative research which is giving a voice to those statistics then i think using them both together is incredibly important sorry to put you on the spot no worries are you
0: able to give an example of a story or a case study which was used which then reinforced some quantitative evidence which was already out there that then
1: drove change public opinion or policy Absolutely. So at Stonewall, our approach has always been to see quantitative and qualitative research as two sides of the same coin, and you'll rarely see a report that we do which doesn't include elements of both. For example, I wrote a piece of research back in 2017 called The School Report. We did that in partnership with the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge. That was a large-scale survey of nearly 4,000 LGBT young people in Britain's schools. And from that research, we found that the majority of schools weren't delivering LGBT inclusive relationships and sex education obviously that's such an important topic and it's so important for keeping young people safe for helping them make informed decisions and we knew that because lgbt young people weren't seeing their experiences reflected in what they were taught that made them less likely to engage in that learning um, it gave them less of the tools they needed to keep themselves safe and to make informed decisions and have healthy relationships As a result of that, we took the quantitative evidence, which showed that just one in five LGBT young people have learnt about same-sex relationships at school. We then mirrored that with some really useful quotes. For example, testimonies and case studies of young people who asked their relationships and sex education teacher whether they could explain same-sex relationships or how to have safe sex in those relationships and the teacher said that it was inappropriate and asked Mm. them to leave the classroom. We also saw really interesting case studies of people who felt that because they didn't have the tools to understand their own identity, so for example they were never taught about being bisexual, that meant that they repressed their identity for a really long time because they weren't given the tools they needed to understand that. So what we did was we took the stats, we took the really useful case studies and the really powerful and compelling case studies and we presented them together and we used that to lobby the government and partly as a result of that we're now moving towards LGBT inclusive relationships and sex education for all. There's been huge policy change in recent years and having a strong compelling evidence basis has really helped with that.
0: Would it be fair to say that Stonewall and other groups wouldn't have been as successful in lobbying the government to achieve this change had they not had a powerful base of both quantitative evidence, so statistics and
1: data, and qualitative evidence, which was the case studies and the stories. Absolutely, and I think it's that thing with with the qualitative data it plays such an important role in those meetings you have with policymakers, Mm -hmm. with civil servants, with ministers, when you're really trying to get them to recognize what the impact of a policy is on the ground in terms of everyday life on an individual pupil. That has such a huge impact when you can tell them a story which resonates with them, which makes sense to them, and which they can see parts of their own experience in. It's been incredibly helpful in that respect. So just thinking about some of the
0: practicalities of how would one go about gathering this qualitative data because essentially you're going to have to talk to people who are affected. So if we stick with the theme of sexuality sure. and we think about younger people, so maybe people who are, you know, under 18. What are some of the challenges in actually getting that data
1: from these you know, children basically. That's something that we've grappled with over the 30 years that we've been working on these issues at Stonewall. Because ultimately, if you talk to a lot of LGBT adults, they will say that many of them came out before they were 18. Many of them realised that they were LGBT at a much younger age, as young children or in their adolescence. And really capturing those experiences requires quite a nuanced approach to research. And I think what we found most useful is making sure that everything we do has very clear assurances of confidentiality, of anonymity. A lot of the qualitative research we've done in the past has been survey-based, although we're moving towards a more kind of ethnographic interview basis. And really, it's about being very sensitive, asking people to disclose their sexual orientation, their gender identity, but in a way which is sensitive, explaining to them why it's important, and also giving them really clear assurances on confidentiality. I've seen some quite interesting quantitative research. It's a longitudinal research studies where at the age of 18, they started asking the question about sexual orientation. They were then able to backdate that research. So they've got the same cohort over the, a period of 20 years. They can ask the question at the age of 18, and then they can go back to the age of 10 and see what that lesbian, gay, and bi cohort what their mental health was like at the age of 10 to see if their mental health was any different to the straight cohort at that Mm -hmm. same age. So I think there are useful ways that you can get around some of the sensitivities and make sure you're doing it in a way which people feel comfortable with. So just picking up on that, researchers and those advocating for
0: change like yourself to a large extent rely upon official data sources, data collected by governments, by local authorities office for national statistics so all of these official bodies can you just give a very broad overview of the situation for data collection in the uk who decides what is collected and
1: how is it collected sure so in terms of the situation with data collection a lot of that is coming from central government and from the office for national statistics i've spoken to members of staff at the office for national statistics over the last few years and they really strongly recognize that they need to do a lot more when it comes to LGBT inclusion. Whilst they're routinely collecting information on things like gender, ethnicity, religion, when it comes to sexual orientation, when it comes to gender identity, they haven't been as hot on that. And I think what is really important is that the government needs to set a really clear message that it's important to collect this data If we're not counted, we don't count, and that's the fundamentals of it. So we should be collecting data on sexual orientation and gender identity in the same way as we should be collecting data on any protected characteristic. And I think some people may not understand why it's important to collect that data, although most will. And so I think there's a really important piece of education work to make sure that everyone understands why it's so important to collect this data. Can you just go into a bit more detail as
0: to why it matters? Why does it matter that indicators like or identities like sexual orientation or gender identity why does it matter that these are not collected in official
1: statistics by the ONS? Absolutely. So at the moment, because this data isn't collected routinely in things like national patient experience surveys Mm -hmm. and the census up to this point, for example, it means that it's left to civil society organisations like Stonewall to do the research. And the research we do is robust and high quality, but ultimately we can never get the sample size, the survey size of the census of a government national data set. And I think particularly when we're looking at areas like education, looking at areas like health, it's so important to have that national prevalence data, which spells out really clearly what the inequalities are. Because if the government can see, for example, that LGBT patients are experiencing particularly poor patient experiences in the healthcare system, then they can target an intervention to address that. But until we have that information, we don't know. We just have to rely on anecdotal evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and. One difficulty we've encountered is that we've encountered resistance to the government collecting data on sexual orientation and gender identity not necessarily from the government but from some members of the public they don't understand why it's important and the reason that people don't understand why it's important is because it hasn't been explained to them why it's so important to collect this data so that we can address any inequalities that come up and we don't know what the inequalities are because we don't have the data on it and so you get Mm. into this circle Mm -hmm. um, which prevents anything from really being done Can you Mm. just think of an area or a domain where if we
0: did routinely collect Mm. this data about sexual orientation and gender identity, we'd be able to show
1: conclusively how certain people are held back or disadvantaged. Well, I think one really good example is homelessness. So Mm -hmm. there have been some really useful, small scale quantitative studies which have shown around the world that LGBT young people are disproportionately overrepresented in the youth homelessness population. But we don't have that hard quantitative data, particularly in the UK. We don't have the national prevalence data. And again, we're forced to rely on that anecdotal evidence. And Mm. I think if we get to a point where homelessness support services, for example, or early intervention services are routinely monitoring their service users' sexual orientation and gender identity in a sensitive way, then really we can get that national database that we need to lobby hard on a central government level. So to clarify, there are some areas where there is quantitative data. And
0: more stories and more case studies mm. could support that. And there are some areas where all that we really have is the qualitative yes, data. exactly. And so in every situation, whatever the policy issue is, if you have hard statistical evidence backed up with robust qualitative
1: evidence and stories, that's the best way to be able to lobby for change. Absolutely. I think you can't have one without the other. and. I suppose qualitative data in in terms of policy making in some circles has not been as esteemed as quantitative data and I think we need to redress that balance and support people to realise that actually both types of research have their unique benefits and their drawbacks but together they build a very powerful case for change. Josh Bradler it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you very much. Thanks very much.
0: My next guest on today's episode is Professor Alyssa Goodman. Um, Alyssa is the Director of the Centre for Longitudinal Studies at UCL. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. So you're the expert on longitudinal studies. What are longitudinal studies and why do they matter?
2: Longitudinal studies are studies of the population that follow the same individuals over time. They're really important because they enable us to track changes in people's lives and to understand some of the reasons why those changes happen.
0: And can you give me an example of a big longitudinal study that has had a big impact on influencing you know, what we know about society and people?
2: So we run several longitudinal studies at UCL. And some of those are birth cohort studies. They follow large groups of people from the point when they're born. So they start off being studies of babies, and they follow people across the whole of their lives. They've been phenomenally important for the understanding of inequality. They've shown us for the first time how important family background is and early life is for the whole of life. And they've been very important as well for showing how there are cycles of both advantage and disadvantage which perpetuate across generations. So what we know about the early life roots of inequality and what we know about social mobility from one generation to the next is derived from longitudinal studies.
0: And can you explain a bit about what these longitudinal studies have shown about the impact of one's early life and then where they end up as an adult?
2: So I've done a lot of work myself on childhood mental health and how important that is for later life outcomes. Not just your mental health and well-being as you go through life, but a whole set of other outcomes including economic outcomes. So we find that if you develop mental health problems early in life, that has major impacts across the whole of your life, including on how much you earn and your income. The other sorts of findings we get from studies like these often look at poverty, so the long-term impact of growing up poor, so there are many, many people who manage to break free from their early life circumstances and do well despite the odds. The studies are very powerful in enabling us to study that as well as what some of the risks are from disadvantages that you might experience
0: early. And are these studies able to tell us about causation or is it more there's correlations and then more work has to be done to look at what's causing what?
2: So the studies are absolutely fantastic for looking at causation. They are observational studies. They're not studies where you randomly assign one set of circumstances to a group of people and then have a control group that didn't have those circumstances assigned. But because they tend to be very rich, they allow you to compare people who are similar in all other respects except an experience of bereavement is one example you can compare people who have been bereaved at a particular life stage maybe a loss of a parent and um, those who haven't and by taking into account very rich sort of background characteristics you can say more about causation there are also uh, ways that you could look at changes over time within an individual's life that help you mm-hmm. get beyond the sort of correlational associations and get closer to causality so they're really important for that
0: so it sounds like these studies are they're extremely comprehensive and broad in what they're tracking. Thinking about it in a practical way, how does a baby end up being studied from the moment they're born and how, what kind of interaction do researchers have with the people in these studies for the rest of their lives?
2: So some of our study members have told us that they feel that they're very special that they ended up in these studies. The older studies from the UK sampled all births within particular weeks across the whole of the sampling area, whether that was the UK or Great Britain. So everyone with a particular birthday was essentially included. And as those people went through school, they knew the other kids in their class or across classes who had similar birthdays and they would know that they were in the study, maybe a couple of kids in each school or in each class. Nowadays we sample from across the population so study members won't necessarily know each other or know who each other is. There are some longitudinal studies across the country that uh, sample births from a particular kind of place, a city or a town or an area, and that's another way of, of people ending up in studies like this.
0: It seems like it's really important that we do as much of this work as possible. So what's the current status of longitudinal studies? Are enough of them happening?
2: One thing I'd really like to see is a new national birth cohort study. So there's a huge need to understand what's going on for the next generation of babies being born. What are their life chances? How are the massive changes that we're seeing now in society, in our politics, in our economy, how are those gonna affect families and new babies being born? The last national study we had was of babies born around the millennium, so in 2000 and 2001, and they're late teenagers now. So I'd really like to see a new birth cohort study that picks up trends across the whole country sometime very soon.
0: Who would undertake this study? Which organisation or institution would be doing this?
2: So these are typically academic studies that are commissioned through academic funding processes. They need the support from government and policy makers as well as funders such as the UKRI. So we'd like to see a coalition of groups coming together to initiate an important project like this.
0: I guess one of the really powerful things about these studies is that they demonstrate the importance of taking a life course approach, which is something we advocate for quite heavily in the report, so really considering how different stages of one's life, especially from an earlier stage, have a big impact on the future outcomes. Now, can you talk a bit about, when we talk about the life course approach, what do you take that to mean and why do you think it's important?
2: I take that to mean that people's lives are connected. So what happens to you at one moment in your life has importance for what happens next. And if we want to understand why things are unequal, then we need to see what's come before in somebody's life, so a snapshot isn't necessarily going to tell you as much as you need, especially if you want effective policies to change things. And one of the most important things we find taking a life course approach is the cumulative nature of experience in people's lives. So positive experiences when you're young tend to enable you to go on and have further positive experiences later and difficulties also may have cumulative effects. So it's extremely important when we're talking about breaking those kinds of cycles to understand what points in time in people's lives might be the most sensitive ones and which aspects of people's lives are potentially the most malleable or or amenable to change.
0: So when you talk about these cycles are we saying that in some domains you have kind of vicious cycles where you start off in one position then that makes it harder for you to achieve things in other areas and then that traps you in a cycle of potentially poverty or disadvantage and then on the other hand you have kind of virtuous circles where if you're born in to a good position it makes it easier for you to get to a certain level and then is that what we see happening These that's, kind of patterns? Yes
2: that's exactly what you would see.
0: And um, I know that one area you're focused on is income inequality. There's often a lot in the media about this, a lot of conflicting information sometimes about what is really happening with income inequality. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? In the UK, are you able to answer that question?
2: So I think if you read the press, you might think that things were forever and only getting worse and the inequalities were widening and widening and widening. It's a more subtle picture than that. Certainly over the 1980s, And early 1990s inequalities grew massively in this country so we went from being a relatively low inequality country to being a high inequality country in a matter of a decade or so and we've remained a very high inequality country relative to other developed nations since then some years inequality goes up a bit other years it goes down there's many different statistics there's no one single summary statistic that captures everything certainly the gap between the kind of very rich, the top 1% or more, and the rest of the population continue to widen over time. But exactly what's happening between kind of the middle and the poorest or, you know, the top and the middle is, it's not just a question of ever widening inequality in every dimension.
0: So we're saying that between the very richest, sort of of the elite level of wealth, there's certainly widening inequality, but... With the rest of the population, it's a slightly more nuanced picture.
2: Right. So we're a high inequality country. And if we didn't have a tax and benefit system which redistributed between rich and poor, then those gaps would certainly widen. So some of the effects of austerity have hit harder on the lower income groups. And so some aspects of inequality have widened because of that.
0: Professor Alyssa Goodman thank you so much for talking to me today it's been really fascinating to get your insights.
2: Thank you.